We are uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35 tonight. If you want to take a look in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1234, conveniently enough. Um, uh, or it'll be on the screen as well if you want to follow along. Uh, we, are in, uh, we are still in the Easter season, uh, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Uh, and this is uh, the story most commonly known as the road to Emmaus. So uh, let's read together. Uh, verse 13 of Luke chapter 24 says, Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you were walking along? They stood still, looking sad. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Why are you the only, or are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all of the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was take, talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their companions gathered there. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. A couple weeks ago, I watched a, a documentary uh, which was about a musician I really like, and it really was supposed to be one, one of those kind of behind-the-music things where you see the making of an album and, and you know, them getting the songs written and then getting it out on tour. But it happened to have been filmed right in the beginning, uh, or part of it, uh, about halfway through, was right when COVID hit. And so uh, what you ended up seeing a lot of was uh, this musician and his wife, who was also a musician, and their child stuck at the house, unable to do the things they normally do musically, unable to go on the road, unable to create and perform, uh, just not really sure what to do, right? You saw the disorientation that came uh, for all of us in one way or another when the world changed so rapidly and moved underneath our feet. Uh, as I was watching that part of the, of, of the uh, documentary, and there was, there's plenty of parts of it that were a little bit, uh, you know, uh, 
hair raising. I mean, the guy had kind of, he was a good behind the music. The guy had done some living in his life. But when you saw he and his wife and his child at the house and them trying to struggle to figure out kind of what to do, I found myself getting like noticeably like anxious just sitting there and watching it. Like it was creating, I don't know if it was PTSD uh, from, you know, uh, all that happened a couple years ago or what. But I started to kind of get that because I, what I've realized is I've done this strange thing, which is um, I treat that pandemic like it's ancient history. Um, I know it just happened. Intellectually, I can understand that the thing just happened, but I kind of wanted that part of the documentary to be black and white because that's kind of how I'm treating it. Like it was a, a long time ago, like it couldn't happen again, uh, like it was this thing way in the past. Again, I know that it, we just went through it, but it feels surreal, even at this point, just a couple years later, to consider the world moving as quickly as it did and changing as much as it did. Um, I remember when everything was first started to happen and we heard about the first case happening in Hattiesburg. We got a text from someone that said, first case hit Hattiesburg. And all of a sudden, all that kind of unknowing anxiousness popped up. And so I said uh, something to Sarah that I don't, I don't think I've ever said in a way of dealing with stress. I said, I think I need to go shop. <laughs> it's not my typical response to stress, uh, eating copious amounts of things I shouldn't or something like that maybe. But no, I said, I, wanna go, I think I need to go shopping, right? So we can stick in the house this week if we need to. And so I jumped in the car, and it was, a, it was a little too late to be making this trip, but I came all the way other side of town, and I went to Target, and uh, I walked into the strangest zombie land I have ever seen in Target. There really wasn't that many people there, although, because the shelves were mostly bare. I mean, people had already picked through uh, everything. People, a lot of people got anxious before I did, apparently. Um, there were a handful of people there. The people that were there uh, were not looking at each other, not talking to each other, uh, and were kind of in this, there's just this weird thing happening. And they'd just gotten a truckload of paper goods. So I just happened to walk in as they were putting uh, paper towels and, uh, you know, uh, toilet paper and all that out. Got one of the big packages, but I didn't, you know, other people were like grabbing two and three. And I remember thinking, in what world could we possibly need more than one of these? Little, little did I know that they'd be traded on the street like drugs later on. <laughs> but there was so much that I took for granted, so much that I just assumed would always be there, would always work a certain way, that so quickly left, right? It was a very disorienting time. I genuinely don't really know how I'll explain that to our kids later on when they're grown, because I know my kids experienced it. Technically, they were alive, but they, don't, they didn't know what was going on. It didn't take long for everything and everyone uh, to feel threatening, Right? We were dealing mostly in stories and rumors and unproven theories of one kind or another. All of us were simultaneously more in the same boat than I ever remember, maybe since 9-11. But we were also, uh, we had the shared vulnerability, but we were also uh, less connected than ever. We literally started avoiding each other like the plague. We didn't really know much of anything in the beginning. And all of us, I think, just wanted answers. Do you remember just watching the news endlessly, scrolling through articles after article, just trying to find something to make some sense of it? We all wanted some answers. So cue the news reports, the YouTube videos, the conspiracy theories, all the good and bad that followed. Anything to give someone a sense of why all this was happening. Anything that explained it, told us what it meant. That's the feeling that I, I kind of want you to hold on to a little bit because I think this is what the disciples are going through as they're walking to Emmaus, away from Jerusalem, where the most jarring thing they could have imagined has just happened. They're leaving Jerusalem stunned and bewildered. 
Everything that anchored their lives and identity has suddenly and violently been ripped away. The ground shifted under their feet, and the world makes little sense to them now. They're walking, and they're talking, and they're trying to find some solace with each other and trying to find some comfort in a world that's on fire. Then along comes this stranger. And apparently a pretty ignorant stranger at that, right? Because this guy has not heard that the world is burning. He doesn't have a clue what they're talking about. He asks them, what are, you, what are you saying to each other? And in some irony that I really like here, these two disciples who are unknowingly walking with Christ himself, the one that they are the most missing the most and wanting to see the most, ironically, they wonder how any sane person could possibly miss something so obvious right in front of them. They inform the stranger of the bad news that he missed, and they utter what is maybe the saddest thing possible, right? In Scripture it says they stopped walking, they looked sad, and they replied, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. This is, to me, one of the saddest little sentences in Scripture, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Can you sense the absolute despair in their response? They don't know what to believe about this new awful world they're living in. Their hopes have been dashed against the cruelty in the world, of the world and its cross. They just want answers. Again, not unlike the answers all of us wanted when the world began to fall apart. What do we do? What's safe? What's not safe? Do I have to spray my packages from Amazon or no? Masks? What kind of masks? How far apart? Can I go outside or is it just floating in the air out there? When all of it hits the fan, we just want answers, something to tell us what it all means. And perhaps the most miraculous part of this story is that these disciples actually get just that. They get an explanation. They actually get answers. It says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things about himself in Scripture. Is anyone else annoyed with Luke that this is all he says about this? I want that Bible study material. Jesus, God incarnate, explaining everything from Moses to the prophets in regards to himself. Everything. Why couldn't he write down that stuff? It would save me a lot of time each week in coming up with a sermon. I could just read a portion, we could call it a night, get to the communion table, right? They get it. They actually get answers. It doesn't happen very much when you're in a situation like this. They get answers. They get such good answers, it says, the teachings made their hearts burn within them. And that is a good sermon. There's a fair chance that I'll give you some heartburn tonight from the, from the pulpit, but it won't be in that way. It makes sense that their hearts feel the way they do because receiving some kind of understanding is a real gift in a shifting world. When we finally started to get our hands around it, it just made life make sense a little more even if it wasn't working the way we wanted it to. We could navigate the world a little better, realizing we didn't have to spray down those packages coming from Amazon. To know that we could go outside and be okay, we didn't have to scurry away if we saw another human being to learn a little more about the science, even if it was slow to unfold. To begin to feel a little less disoriented, more able to navigate this strange new world. 
I didn't personally get the equivalent of a sermon from Jesus on all of Scripture. I didn't get that kind of answer, but the answers I did start to get helped a lot, right? They warmed the heart, even if it wasn't burning within me. I was grateful for even the little bits of understanding I could get. But as great as that understanding is, for me, as great as it was for those disciples, we all need a little more. It's not enough. They ask this now not-so-ignorant stranger to please stay with them, and he agrees. If he's going to stay with them, they end up where they're going to inevitably end up, around the table. They get to the table, and the stranger does what you do. He breaks the bread, he blesses it, and he gives it to them. He shares it. And this, this is where the magic happens in the story. This is when it all changes for those hopeless disciples. Because as much as having answers can warm your heart, sharing the table is what ultimately heals it. We want answers. We need incarnation. We long for reasons and explanations, but we require communion. For our God is only ever truly known in person. Which brings me to what I think was the best decision our family made during covid we chose at, a, at, at one point to take some calculated risk and to share the table. We got someone else in our bubble. I'm still feeling weird about the fact that that's even a phrase that used to be a part of our life. We had a bubble and we let someone in. Right? Uh, one of Lillian's closest friends lived just like a half a block away. Her family, the adults in her family, like the adults in our family, were working from home. Uh, we all kind of found and realized that we are basically on the same page in regards to what steps we felt like we would and should take to protect ourselves and the community in a reasonable way. And so we realized we're all kind of on the same page and pretty safe as far as it goes. And so we asked them in. As someone who's been married for almost 20 years, I'll be honest, it kind of felt like asking someone on a first date. I was a little nervous. But we invited them to be exclusive with us. We would be in each other's bubbles and limit our proximity to almost everyone else. Now, up to that point, we knew each other. We were acquaintances. Our children played together. But I wouldn't say we were deep friends in any way. Regardless of that, we took the risk. We all agreed. And I'll tell you that everything was instantly at least a little bit better. That's how we did the next few months of the pandemic. We shared space when it felt risky to do that with anybody you didn't have to. Our kids played at each other's houses. Lillian had her first sleepover during the pandemic, which is a neat little thing she'll be able to tell people one day. Each day we'd go to the town square park, which is basically our neighborhood park, and the kids would play. And we, the parents, trying to fight off the COVID-20 that was attacking all of us, would walk the track and talk. Uh, I got to know Josh, who uh, was uh, the father of the girl that, that Lillian went to school with. And uh, for hours, I would get to walk around and talk with someone who was objectively a lot smarter than me. And we'd talk about politics and parenting and religion and everything else under the sun that it takes to waste the three hours you're trying to get your kids to just do something outside the house. Until we all became flesh and blood friends. Then we kind of dialed it up. We took it to the next relational level at one point. We started taking turns cooking for each other, eating meals at each other's houses. I particularly remember the first time they invited us to their Shabbat dinner. 
Now, a lot of you know I grew up in South Florida, and you may also know there are one or two Jewish families there. I grew up with a lot of Jewish friends. Somehow, I had never been over to someone's house for Shabbat. Probably says more about me than them, that I was never invited. But if I'm honest with you, when I was young, I probably wouldn't have accepted. We weren't exactly raised to be really open to other religious traditions. I probably would have thought there was something magical and mystical that was going to rip me away from Jesus' arms if I had shown up. I probably wouldn't have done it. Of course, nothing, uh, nothing could be less true than that. And I remember when we did that first uh, Shabbat meal, I remember how holy it felt, uh, having not been in a room with you guys for a long time at that point, how holy it felt to see and hear that blessing in Hebrew, to listen to their kids do their recitations in Hebrew. They sanctified that meal for us. Our friends literally blessed the fresh-baked challah, which has the uh, happy coincidence of also being delicious. But they blessed that fresh-baked bread, they broke it, and they shared it with us. Just as they had shared themselves with us when that was a luxury in the world of the time. It was a reaffirmation to me of the very core of what I believe about God and the humans that are made in God's image. Learning and understanding is wonderful when we can get it. I hope to get more of it myself one day. But the food that truly sustains us is served around a a table crowded with friends. We are made to share the meal that we've been given. In the Christian tradition, the word must always become flesh for us to really flourish. This is what the disciples had to learn on that sad, confusing walk away from Jerusalem is what we could do well to never forget again. A good book might bring in some focus. A terrific sermon could even light a switch for you and turn the lights on. But nothing replaces the table where we share ourselves with each other. Because God could have handed down a succinctly written explanation of all the world's knowledge that we needed to know and handed it off. We could have all been privy to the Sunday school lesson that made these disciples' hearts burn within them. Instead, God became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. God did not just give us answers, God gave God's self, because that is what we most need. God had and still has a body in this world, and nothing replaces communion with it. That's why I'm still a stickler for what happens each week and in this, in this room and every time we gather together. We record our sermons, there's probably someone listening to this right now over podcast just hundreds of thousands of people moved by my words each week. (laughs) And I understand the value of that, and I'm not opposed to us recording it, and I know that there's some people who cannot make it into a church service and they feel connection through such recordings, and that's a good thing. But you will never convince me that if given the choice, you can fully practice faith in an incarnate God while while you're by yourself on the couch. You can be a football fan most Sundays from your couch, but you're not playing until you're on the field. It's a flesh-on-flesh thing. It's a contact sport. God bless a good audiobook. God bless a good podcast about Jesus, but you will not get there by yourself. The Christian faith is an embodied practice. We can know the creeds. We can have understanding of theology and philosophy and the stories of Scripture, and they can warm our hearts, and that's a good thing. But those are not the things that truly heal 
our broken hearts as we sadly walk away from what we had so badly hoped would be true. We can only love, share, forgive, welcome, and practice hospitality in person. God becomes fully present only in the messiness of a shared moment. Christ is with us when we are with each other. There is no substitute for the tables we share. They are why we are here together. So never mind all the other stuff we get so worried about. Forget the fancy programming, the smoke and lights, or the plastic polished smiles of the professionally religious. God is found humbly present at the shared table of the brokenhearted and hopeless. God is with us in all the small and formational moments of a life lived together every day. Christ has a body, and it's yours. Christ has a body, and it's yours, and we need you at the table. We need you to bring what you have, to bless it, and to share it with us. Because a shared table is where the broken-hearted disciples are reintroduced to the God of love. And if we do this, if we remember this, maybe at that point we can then also uh, repeat back the final verse uh, that we heard tonight. Then they told what had happened on the road, and now he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are an incarnate God. That you are not just the creator of the universe who stepped out into time, made all this happen, and then walked away. You are not just a God who is above us, but you are a God who is with us. And you are a God who is still with us and within us today. God, we know that you realized, that you understood that the only way we could ever truly come to get a glimpse of who you are is if you shared this world with us, if you shared the table with us, if you took what was most broken and battered about this world, leaned into it, and redeemed it. God, our prayer is that we would not buy into the notion of freelance Christianity, that we'd not buy into the notion of some kind of privatized spirituality, or for we know that while our faith is very personal, it is never private, that, Lord, this table is made for us to share. So our prayer is that each person in this room might be a part of a community, that they might be living each and every day with the gathered body of Christ be it in this room or in another room. Lord, may we share the table as you shared it with us. We do love you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.